The three weeks is uh, a time of national mourning. It, uh, on the calendar, it falls between uh, the dates of the breaching of the walls of the holy city of Jerusalem on the 17th of Tammuz and the actual destruction of the of the Besamekdash of the temple on the 9th of Av. So that's uh, three weeks between those two dates. And halakhically, it's a time where we are enjoined to mourn, to grieve. And it is a very sad time. But at the same time, it's not a contradiction. There's another perspective. And that is that at the same time that we're grieving for what we lost, the grandeur, the splendor of what once was when the temple stood, at the very same time, we are looking forward to what will be. When, as the prophets have promised us, the temple will be rebuilt in its place, and all of the, the mitzvahs of the offerings will be reinstated. And the revelation of God's presence of the, of the Shekhinah will return. So it's a, it's a difficult time to, to, to be Jewish, not just during the three weeks, but really the past 2,000 years. <laughs> because on one hand, there's so much loss there's so much to mourn the, the loss of. On the other hand, there's so much to look forward to because good times are coming. And whatever it is that was taken away will be replaced by something far greater. To the extent that the Rambam says in the laws of fasts that these fast days, which commemorate the historical dates having to do with the destruction, not only will they be uh, canceled when Mashiach comes, but they'll be transformed. They'll become days of rejoicing, which is kind of an interesting concept if you think about it. If these dates coincide with tragic events and therefore they're days of national mourning, so then once the cause for mourning is removed, when Mashiach comes and everything we lost will be returned to us, so then... I would understand that the, you would mourn no longer, you would, you would sort of cancel the, the mourning. But the Ramam says, no, actually it's going to be transformed into a days, these, these days, the very days, these very days are going to be transformed into days of rejoicing. So how do you understand that? What you understand is that it's not just that Hashem gave us something and He took it away and then He gave it back, a zero-sum game, in which case... What was the point of it all? But rather, it's a process. And part of that process is loss. But every, every event that has occurred, even the most painful events, are essential and necessary to the process. And in the end, it all becomes used. It's all part of the plan. And it couldn't be as great as it's going to be without having gone through the trials and the tribulations that we went through. Um, the only way to really understand this, I mean, we could have faith, but I'm saying to understand it, to wrap our heads around it, is actually the way that... Uh, Rabbi Akiva understood it when he himself saw the site of the destroyed temple. Rabbi Akiva and his cohorts, his uh, fellow sages, were in the location of the destroyed temple. This is after the destruction of the second temple. And they saw the desolation. They saw how foxes were walking. I think maybe we think of foxes as kind of charming. But... Uh, in North America, imagine raccoons. Okay, it's nothing. It wasn't. It wasn't charming. It was uh, anything but. And they saw foxes 
walking around in the spot, the very spot where the high priest used to enter on the uh, holiest day of the year on, on Yom Kippur. And they were all crying, and Rabbi Akiva was laughing, and they said, why are you laughing? He said, why are you crying? And he cited for them the verse from Micha, which says, Tzien Soda Ticharish. That Tzien, Zion, Jerusalem, the temple, will be plowed like a field. What does that mean? Anyone who ever studied Hilchas Shabbos, the laws of uh, Sabbath observance, knows that there are 39 prohibited uh, malachas. A malacha means a creative act, a productive act. It doesn't just mean labor. It means something that accomplishes something. In fact, something that's destructive, that's kilkul, is, uh, is not considered labor on Shabbos. One of the 39 forms of labor is plowing. So when we say, the place of the Beis HaMikdash will be plowed like a field, what does it mean? Is it a destructive act or a productive act? Depends how you look at it. If you look at a snapshot in the moment, it's destruction. If you understand it as a process, then it was plowing, and it's a productive act, and it was all for the purpose of greater growth. The more you plow, the more things grow. There's a story about a Jew back in Russia who was in prison. He wrote his wife, and they would read all of his letters. In one of her correspondences to him, she says that um, the winter is coming to an end, and we're running out of potatoes. They need to plant potatoes but the ground is still so hard, I can't break the ground, I can't loosen the soil to plant the potatoes. So he writes his wife back and he says, don't touch the ground in our yard because that's where I've hidden all of the weapons. And the next day, a wagon full of soldiers pulls up with shovels and axes and they tear apart the entire yard. Of course, they find nothing and they leave. She writes him back and she says, craziest thing happened Soldiers came and they tore apart the yard with shovels and axes. He writes her back and says, now you can plant the potatoes. So if you were to take a snapshot of that moment where the soldiers were ripping up the yard, is that destruction or is that uh, productive? If you, if you only knew what the soldiers knew from their perspective, is it destructive or is it productive? But if you understand the big picture, then uh, it wasn't destruction, it was plowing. And the more you plow, the more things grow. So yeah, this sad time is not just going to be taken away from us and canceled out and nullified as if it never were. No, to the contrary, this sad time will become a time of special rejoicing, special joy, greater joy than the joy that we're going to be constantly having when Mashiach comes. So like I said, this is an awkward time, the three weeks, but it's been an awkward couple of millennia for the Jewish people. On one hand, we are grieving unfathomable loss, and at the very same time, we are anticipating unfathomably great times. So, <clears throat> we're going to do both. We're going to do both. We're going to mourn the past, and we're going to anticipate the future, the near future, the imminent future. And if you've ever been driving in a car, you know that you have to have a rearview mirror. It's not safe if you don't see what's behind you. And that's like the Jewish people. We never forget. We continue to mourn the loss of the base of Megdash, even though it was 2,000 years ago. We don't forget our history. That's the rearview mirror. We always take a peek at it. We always take a glance to remember where we've been, where we come from. But at the same time, you probably notice the rearview mirror is up there on the windshield. And between the two of them, the rearview mirror and the windshield, the windshield's a lot bigger than the rearview mirror. It's important to look in the rearview mirror, get a glance to remember where you came from. But The picture that we need to have in mind, and has to be crystal clear, is what's ahead of us, where we're, we're, we're 
we're headed to, our, our destination. So, with that in mind, what I want to do tonight is talk about the Beis HaMikdash, the Holy Temple, Beis HaBechira, Hashem's chosen house, as the Ramam refers to it, in Hilchus Beis HaBechira, the laws of Hashem's chosen house. And I want to talk about it with this double uh, tone, this, this paradoxical approach. On one hand, we're we're recalling something that was amazing that was taken from us and we're, we're in mourning. On the other hand, we're getting excited because this is what's coming. And our hearts are big enough to, to contain both. So we're going to talk about the Beis HaMikdash. Uh, specifically, what I wanted to do is talk about aspects of the Beis HaMikdash that are described in the Rambam's Hilchas Beis HaBechira. Um, Lubavitcher Rebbe suggested that this is one of the most effective ways that we can participate in the rebuilding of the Beis HaMikdash before it actually happens, and that is by studying the Rabbim's Hilchas Beis HaBechira. It's a section within Mishnah Torah, and I'm not going to study the text, I'm not going to read to you from the text, although I do encourage anybody to pick up a Mishnah Torah and uh, to check out Hilchas Beis HaBechira and to study those laws during, during these days. But what I want to share with you are, are life lessons, um, spiritual teachings that we can learn from certain aspects of the Beis HaMikdush. Uh, the, just to give a, a little product placement here, the idea for this, as I said, the Rebbe encouraged uh, study of Helchus Beis HaBechira, but the idea for this specifically uh, in this format that we're doing it this year, uh, it was a partnership that was formed between the Meaningful Minute organization and uh, Soul Words. And of course, Chabad of the Five Towns is our gracious host here for this event. Um, what we're doing is, dur during the three weeks, we're putting out a Mikdash Minute. A Mikdash Minute, as opposed to a Meaningful Minute. Um, and they're, they're little minute, you know how the kids are today. They can't watch anything that's longer than a minute long. So we're putting out these little minute uh, Instagram story length teachings. But this is for the, this is, this is the grown-up version of it. <laughs> so here I'll be able to unpack it a little bit more. But the, the, the original concept was to have these Mikdash minute videos with something about the Beis HaMikdash that you can apply in your life and to be inspired. And so that's what I'm doing here, but this, this is the grown-up version of it. Okay. Um, one of the kalim, one of the utensils in the Beis HaMikdash was the kiyar. The kiyar is a sink. And the sink was used for the kehanim, for the priests who worked in the Beis HaMikdash, to wash their hands and feet, to prepare for their, uh, their work, for their Aveda. So, what's the kia? You know, there, there are kalim, there are these utensils in the Beis HaMikdash, each one of them has such uh, significance and symbolism. You have the, in the, in the holy area, you have, there's the, the, the courtyard, and then within the courtyard, there's the holy area. And then within the holy area, there's the holy of holies. But in the holy area, you have the menorah, which is this uh, candelabrum. And you have the, the shulchan, which is this golden table with the, with the showbread loaves on it. And you have the mizbeach uh, hazahav, the golden altar, where the incense was burned every day. But then you have... Outside of that, you have the kiyar, and it was a sink. So, what's the significance of this sink? It's like you have to wash your hands from the kiyar, but then the real avaida is the, the shulchan, the menorah, the mizbeach. So, I want to tell you something. What's holier? Turning off your phone before you go into shul to daven, or davening when you're in shul. So everyone would say, davening when you're in shul. 
But not necessarily. It's not necessarily correct. Maybe turning off your phone, or at least putting it on silent, before you go into shul is even holier than the davening you're going to do in shul. Sometimes the preparation for the mitzvah is greater than the mitzvah, in a certain way. Why? The mitzvah is holy. But the preparation for the mitzvah has to do with the mundane, with the worldly, with the ordinary, with the everyday. So the mitzvah is already holy. But the preparation for the mitzvah is when you have to actually engage with ordinary things and align them with holy things. Like the kia, washing from the kia. They were washing their hands which was symbolic of washing themselves free of their worldly involvements. Remember, Kahanim didn't stay in the base of English all day, every day. They had day jobs. They would work in shifts. So even the Kohen had what to wash off. We would want to come to the base of English and be involved in holy things. He'd have to wash off his, his involvement with the ordinary day-to-day -day world. You might think that washing that stuff off is just uh, an unavoidable prerequisite, preliminary phase to getting to the real important stuff, the Aveda, the real holy stuff that he's going to do. But uh, there's something very special about getting ourselves ready to do the holy thing, where getting ready to do something holy can even be holier than the thing that's holy. What, were the, what was the kiyar made of? As a copper? Very good. And where was the copper taken from? Donations. Which donations? The women. Why did the women have copper? They were mirrors. We're told that in Mitzrayim, in Egypt, during the most crushing days of slavery, when the men had lost their will to bring children into the world, so the women used to use these mirrors to beautify themselves and attract their husbands so that there would not be a... Uh, population collapse. And in fact, to the contrary, even though they were being brutally oppressed, they had a population explosion. It was all to the credit of these women who understood what they needed to do, and they used these mirrors to, uh, to make themselves more attractive to their husbands. When the women donated these mirrors, Moshe Rabbeinu was actually hesitant to accept them because of their origin, because of, he knew where they came from and what they'd been used for. Um, he wasn't sure if that was appropriate to incorporate into the Beis HaMikdash. In other words, Moshe Rabbeinu appreciated the idea of which means Hashem wants a dwelling place in the lower realms. After all, why does Hashem say, make me also Mikdash, make me a Mikdash? Why doesn't Hashem just make a Mikdash? Because the whole point of it, it should be a physical place in the physical world, built by physical labor from physical uh, materials. That's the Dirabatahtainim, a dwelling place in the lower realms. That's what Hashem desires. So Major Ben understood that. But he figured just the mere fact that this mikdash was being made out of physical materials, that's low enough. But you don't have to incorporate something that has this questionable past. That in other words, there's no question what the women did was ultimately for a holy purpose. They brought Jewish children into the world. But, you know, sometimes, what do you call it, the, the ends justify the means? So maybe the ends are very holy, but the, the, the means are, you know, you got to do what you got to do. So that's how Misha felt about it. He said, look... The ends were very holy. They, they brought Jewish children into the world. But the means, how they accomplished it, was, uh, you know, it's not necessarily something... Look, I mean, telling it like a Bible story, but how would you feel if, uh, you know, your mother was in Mitzrayim and she was sitting there at the dinner table tell, talking about this. And, oh, you remember when your father would come home from slavery and I would look in the mirror and make myself pretty for him so that we could have you? It's like, okay, TMI, I don't want to hear about it. I'm like, <laughs> I'm deliberately trying to do some cringe over here so that you can... Because everybody says, oh, it's so obvious. I, I was my Shurabeinu. I would have accepted it. No, you wouldn't. No, you would also be a little bit weirded out by it. And Hashem told Moshe, accept them. 
they are more precious. The expression Hashem uses in the Medrash, Chaviven Alai. They are more precious to me than all of the donations. There's many reasons why these mirrors were precious. But one insight that we have why they were so precious is because specifically they weren't used directly for a mitzvah. They were used for the preparation that enables you to get a step closer to a mitzvah. And that is what is choviv, that's what's precious to Hashem. Not just the mitzvah. Mitzvahs are already mitzvahs. Mitzvahs are already holy. But when we can do ordinary stuff, everyday stuff, like eating, drinking, procreating, things that all humans be human beings do, and in fact, the animals do, and we can do those things in a way that is part of the process of getting closer to a mitzvah, so that has a special chavivus, that has a special preciousness to Hashem. And that identity of those mirrors was retained even when they were turned into a vessel in the Beis HaMikdash. Instead of being something like the Menorah or the Shulchan or the Mizbech, where, they, where, where, where the, the, the vessel itself is being used for a mitzvah. No, no, the kir, the sink, is the preparation to wash off your connection to the mundane so you could get ready to get closer to doing something that's a mitzvah. So that's how we learned that uh, sometimes it could be, at least from a certain perspective, turning off your phone before you go into shul is more holy than what you do when you daven when you're in shul. Okay. Um, and can you believe that I said that same concept in 57 seconds? I did. But this version was better. Of course I have to say that, because otherwise you're saying, why did he... If he could have done it in 57 seconds, why did he do it in five minutes? Okay, yeah. You should see, it's, a, it's, a, it's really remarkable how we squish these ideas down. Compression. Yeah. I didn't explain all. When I did in the 57-second version for the Mikdash Minute, I didn't explain all this stuff. I'm just hoping people will put two and two together and they'll uh, extrapolate. But over here, I told you, this is like the, the adult version. This is the... This is like the, uh, the mature version of the Mikdush Minute. Okay, fine. All right, here's another one. I got more for you. All right. The Menorah. We mentioned the Menorah. Menorah is a candelabrum. I know everyone thinks about the Menorah, the Hanukkah Menorah. The Hanukkah Menorah, what do you think it's based on? It's based on the Menorah of the Beis Amigdash. We all know the story. When the Greeks defiled the temple, and the Maccabees came into the temple, and they found uh, only enough oil to, to last for one day, and miraculously it lasted the eight days it took to make new oil. So why, why were they lighting oil? What was, what was going on? They were lighting oil because that's something that you do every single day. In the Beis Amigdosh, there was this big candelabrum. There was this big, uh, what's a normal word for a candelabrum? Candelabrum. A menorah. There's this big menorah, and it was a bit made out of gold, and had seven cups. You say, hold on, I thought a menorah has eight cups. Yeah, the Hanukkah one has eight cups. But the one in the base of Mikdash had seven cups, and they would light it every day. Okay. It's interesting that in the building specs that Hashem gives Moshe, and then Moshe gives to Betzalel, who was the architect who made the Mishkan. The Mishkan was the version that they had when they were wandering in the desert for 40 years. And then the Mikdash is the, the permanent structure that was first built by uh, Shleim and Melch, King Solomon. At any rate, the way that it's described there in the building specs is there's certain ornaments there. There's like a building code. You have to have certain types of uh, ornaments and non-functional uh, details. There were these ornamental flowers and orbs and also cups, ornamental cups as opposed to the functional cups. On the top, there were functional cups where they put the oil. But there were also ornamental cups along the uh, arms of the menorah. What's fascinating is we have a sketch that the Ramam himself drew. And in that sketch, the cups are upside down. How do you know they're upside down? Um, you know how a goblet looks? Actually, here, hold on a second. 
This is gonna help me, okay? All right. This is not so exaggerated, the difference between the, but here you see the bottom is narrow and the top is wide, okay? I mean, relatively, it's not flared that much, but the bottom is narrower than the top. So this will be a right side up cup. So the way that Amum draws it is with the wide part down, facing down like this. He draws them as triangles, okay? So the question is, was the Rama being sloppy? I doubt that's the case. Okay, so if he meant it, if he did it on purpose, then what's up with that? Why are the goblets, the ornamental goblets in the, on the Meneta, upside down? So the Rebbe says we could actually decode this based on another feature of the Beis HaMikdush, and that is that the building that Shlomo Melech built had windows that would never pass an energy audit. They were called, uh, yes, they were shkufim atumim. Shkufim atumim means they were flared outward. In the olden days, remember, they didn't have central air and heating. So uh, what they would do is they would try to maximize on the natural light and warmth of the sun. <coughs> so windows generally were flared inward, sort of to... Uh, cause the light from outside to, to be maximized on the inside. And in the Beis HaMikdash, they were built the exact opposite. They were narrow on the inside and wide on the outside so that they would be like dispersed outward, which is a little bit funny because outside is where the light is. And yet it's explained that those windows were testimony to the fact that the Beis HaMikdash was not a regular building. It wasn't built with windows that are meant to draw in light. It was built with windows that allow light to escape and to go out. Physically, we're talking about the light of the Menorah, but also we're saying spiritually, the spiritual light of the Beis HaMikdash was meant to be diffused to the entire world. The Beis HaMikdash was not just a, uh, a symbol of the Jewish people. It was a, a source of spirituality for the entire world. In fact, our sages tell us that if the non-Jewish nations would have understood what the Beis HaMikdash did for them, they would, instead of sending their legions to destroy it, they would have sent all of their armies to surround it and to protect it because of the benefit that uh, having the Beis HaMikdash did for the entire world. So we understand the windows in the base of Mikdash are flared outward because the base of Mikdash is all about giving out light, not bringing it in. The same idea with the cups is that what is a right side up cup? Well, functionality all you know depends on, on purpose. If the purpose of the cup is to hold a drink, then uh, this is right side up. But if the purpose of the cup is to dispense the drink, then this is right side up. In fact, this is upside down because this doesn't, it's not very good at dispensing. This is holding it, not dispensing it. And since the base of Migdash is all about dispensing, so therefore the archetypical cups, the symbol of cups, these ornamental cups, were like this with the wide part facing down. And it's a lesson to all of us that what is holiness? Holiness is being a giver. It's finding opportunities to share our, our gifts and our resources and our talents. And uh, everything we have is only that we can share it with others. Materially and, and spiritually. One of the secrets that Ebba taught us was that when it comes to our Yiddishkeit, our, our Jewish observance and our family's Jewish observance, the only Yiddishkeit that ultimately we really have and hold on to is whatever Yiddishkeit we're actively giving away to others. So if we're keeping it to ourselves and just living an insular life, um, you know, that lasts as long as it lasts. But if we're emissaries and we're going out and spreading the light, then uh, it, has, it, has something, it has an enduring power. Okay. Um, let's talk about another one of the Kalim, the Arin.
The Ark. Didn't they just come out with a Indiana Jones sequel? Yeah, sure. No, I was, I was going to pretend they don't even know about it. If I know about it, you guys know about it. Come on. I was just happy Harrison Ford was still alive. What? <laughs> I assume so. I don't know. <laughs> Anyways, Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? They were looking for the Odin, right? Isn't that what it was? Yeah. Okay. And uh, so the Ark, we talked about the Menorah, which was in the Kodesh, the holy area. And I mentioned in passing the golden altar and the shulchan, the, ta the table, which are also in the holy area. But then there was the holy of holies, the holy of holies. And that's a special place where the, only the high priest went, and he only went there on the holiest day of the year, on, on the Day of Atonement, on Yom Kippur. And inside of there, there was the Arun, the, the ark. So uh, where is the ark? Wasn't that the whole premise of that movie from the 80s, that they were looking for the Ark? Isn't that what it means? The Raiders of the Lost Ark. It was lost. They were trying to find out where it was. Okay, don't... Like having Mandela effect, like maybe it never existed. I know it existed. I know there was such a thing. Okay. At any rate... So where is the Ark? I never thought about that. Ah, okay, well, I'm asking you now, where is the ark? What? What? So people don't know that when Shlema Melech, King Solomon, built the temple, he built catacombs. You know what catacombs are? Like caves, labyrinths, underneath the Beis Amikdash. Why did he do it? Because he knew there would come a time when the temple he built would be destroyed. So precisely, the Arun, the Ark, is in its spot, just straight down. Now, you can't get there by going straight down because it's a convoluted, that's what a catacomb is, by definition, it's convoluted. And I wouldn't recommend trying to go there. And even if you don't have issues of Tumavatara because you'll end up like that nutty putty cave guy if you try to do it. You got it, Simcha? You got it? We didn't laugh. It was a dark joke, and you didn't laugh. What? You did? Okay. You held it in? Okay. So do not try. You know the reference? You Google it afterwards. You'll wish you didn't. Yeah. Yeah. Do not attempt to navigate the catacombs. You end up like the Nutty Putty Cave guy. Funnier the second time. Okay. I'm going to edit this out. Okay. It's very dark, very dark humor. Okay. <sighs> this crowd didn't know one of the biggest Hollywood blockbusters of the 80s. Now I'm expecting they're going to know an obscure reference to a spelunking tragedy. Okay. At any rate. It's just ultimately, at the end, it's just for my amusement. So, yeah. Was it Sandman Sims? <laughs> Was that what you're doing? Take me off? <laughs> oh. <laughs> I thought you were doing like a... No, no, no. Okay. <laughs> All right. So the Arun is exactly in its spot, but it's in those catacombs that King Solomon built. What's the lesson to us? The lesson is, you look at the base of Megdish, it's, it's in a desolate state. It's destroyed. And yet the Arun is still there. I don't see it. It's there. Where is it? It's, it's in there. It's down exactly in its spot. It's down there. You got it. You got to look for it. It's there. You got to know it's there. So you look at a Jew. Each one of us is a Beis Hamikdash, and he looks desolate. He looks completely removed from his Yiddishkeit. Who is this guy? And you have to know that within him is an Aron Kodesh, a holy ark, and it's there. It's there. It's just it's covered up, but it's 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 buried, but it's there. And specifically the Aron, the Aron. What was the contents? What were the contents of the Aron? With the luchais, the tablets, the two tablets that uh, Moshe brought from Sinai, the embodiment of the law, the embodiment of the Torah. So the Oren with the luchais, the tablets, the, the ark with the tablets, that is our connection to Torah. So you see a Jew who looks like a desolate, destroyed Beis Hamikdash, but in that Jew 
there is intact a connection to Torah. And we only need to access it, tap into it, and reveal it. It's there. That's why I never uh, hesitate to share a word of Torah, even with uh, someone you think has no interest in those types of things. You'll be shocked what types of uh, subconscious responses you trigger inadvertently just by sharing a word of Torah. Okay. Um, let's talk a little bit about the structure of the Beis HaMikdash. The Beis HaMikdash was built on a mountain, a hill, hilly mountain. I know it's called Har Habayas. Har means a, a mountain. It's not much of it. It's not like a, a mountain mountain, more like a hill. But... Uh, it's built on, uh, on high ground. Could have been built uh, the foot of the hill. It's built not on the tippy top of the hill. It's built actually, it's called the shoulder. Anatomically, if you imagine like uh, an ox is the way our sages describe it. So there's the head of the ox and then there's the ox's shoulder. So that's like almost to the peak, but not quite. That's where the, the Beis HaMikdash was built on Harabayas. Harabayas means the Temple Mount. Is it called the Temple Mount? This is not actually an attempt to be funny. You know, like, who's buried in Grant's tomb? Right, that question. Is it called the Temple Mount because the Temple was built on it, or was the Temple built on it because it's the Temple Mount? So before it was the Beis HaMikdosh, the Makam HaMikdosh, it was Haramaria, it was the site of the binding of Yitzchak. Yeah, and even before that, Yankee Vavino visited. Yeah, well, that was after Avram and Yitzchak. But even before that, it was the place of the creation of other Mauritian. It's the epicenter of the world, it's the eye of the universe. So the answer to the question is is it Harabayas because Hashem's chosen house is built there, or is Hashem's chosen house built there because it is what it is? And the answer is, it is what it is. It's actually, the entire world was built from that spot. You mentioned the Evan the foundation stone. So uh, it's called Evan because Mimena Hushdosa Oilam. From that, from that stone, the entire world was, uh, was created. So the Beis HaMikdash is on a hill. What's the point of that? So a lot of us tend to think about our Judaism. <clears throat> it's a religion after all. So it's a, re a relationship with Hashem. So we think about it as something that's personal. And I'm not saying in the most brute uh, expression of this, the most crass expression of this, where certain modernizing... Uh, Ideologues used to say, "Be a Jew in your house and a and a man a man in the street." I'm not even saying to that extent. I'm saying even there could be a, an observant Jew, and he's not hiding that he's Jewish, but at the same time, he's not going to flaunt his mitzvah observance. You know, it's like uh, we don't have to rub it in their faces. We're in Gullus, you know. Why do we have to make a show of it? Why do we have to be so public about it? There is such an attitude. But you look at the Beis HaMikdush, where's the Beis HaMikdush? It's on Harabayas. It's on a Temple Mount. It's up, it's, it's prominent. It's on high ground. And this is the message, that when you have something holy, it's good. Show the world. It's only something to be ashamed of if you yourself misunderstand what the purpose of the Beis HaMikdush is and, what, and if you misunderstand what the purpose of your Jewish chosenness is. If you actually think that it's some license to uh, use and abuse the world, then I, yeah, I guess you should be afraid of it. But when you realize, like, like I said earl earlier, that if the world knew what the Beis HaMikdush was doing for them, they would send their armies to protect the Beis HaMikdush, and we have to know that. We have to know that when Mashiach comes, it's good for the world. Most religions, if you're not a follower of their belief, 
then when their end of the world scenario unfolds, you're in trouble. And we don't say that. We say that when Mashiach comes, it's going to be good for everybody. The base of English will be rebuilt. It'll be good for everyone. It'll be peace and prosperity for everybody. The only people who are going to lose out are people who willingly fight it. But everyone will benefit, not just the Jewish people. Not just the Jewish people. Everyone will benefit from it. So once, once you understand that what the base of English symbolizes is this benevolence for the entire world, then why would you ever hide a good thing? Why would you Put it under wraps. So be proud of your Judaism. Be open about it. Um, especially when you're out and about and you're in the secular world and you're dealing with business and you're dealing with, with non-Jews. So uh, be, be open about your observance and be proud of it. Put it on display and show, and show everybody that... Uh, the more observant you are as a Jew, the better it is for the world. Because that's true. That's ultimately what it is. Uh, let's talk about one of the areas in the Beis Hamikdash. There were different chambers. A chamber was called a Lishka. And one of these uh, chambers was called Lishka Sa'etz. Actually, it's confusing because there was a Lishka Sa'etzim and a Lishka Sa'etz. Lishka Sa'etzim was actually a storage shed for wood. You know why they needed wood in the temple? Fire. There are a lot of fire. You know what the fire was for? Yeah, the cooking. The carbonates. They had these sacrifices. They had to be burnt. So a lot of wood, yeah. You couldn't just, uh, you know, turn a knob and make a gas flame or uh, propane or whatever. They had to burn wood. But then there was a Lishkasa 8. So Lishkasa 8 is... As opposed to Lishkasa Eitzim, Lishkasa Eitz was made from wood. And you're going to ask, well, how can it be made from wood? The Ramam also says you're not allowed to have protruding wood in the, the structure of the basement. Maybe that's true. So it, was, it wasn't protruding. In fact, some say it was even covered. It was behind a veneer. You couldn't, behind a facade, you couldn't see it. But at any rate, it was, it was made from wood. And this structure was where the Kain Gadol was capped the high priest, for seven days before Yom Kippur. That's where he would prepare for his big day, for opening night. And uh, in the latter part of the Second Temple period, they began to refer to that chamber as the Lishkas Parhedrin. Parhedrin is a Greek word, which means the king's officers. And the commentaries explain that the reason why they referred to this chamber, remember the chamber was where the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, would spend seven days prepping for Yom Kippur. Why would they refer to that chamber as the Lishkas Parhadrin? And why didn't they ever call it that before? Why was that something they started using that expression in the, the latter part of the Second Temple period? Parhadrin means the king's officers. King's officers in that day were replaced yearly. There were annual appointments, one-year appointments. In the latter part of the second base of Mikdash, there were unscrupulous people who were not fitting for the office of high priest. They bribed their way into the position, and when they would enter the Holy of Holies, they would die, either on the spot or within the year. Like Aaron's two sons, they entered the Holy of Holies, and they were not fitting, and uh, they died, so this is, this is something that happened. They entered the base of the, the, the Holy of Holies, and uh, it's not, well, you saw Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know what happened to the guy, so. Okay, I'm hoping somebody on YouTube will see this and laugh, okay, because I'm not getting anything over here. Okay, all right. So I'm going to give you nightmare fuel. You're going you're gonna to Google Nutty Putty Cave Incident and the Melting Face. Nutty Putty Cave Incident. And you remember Nutty Putty Cave? The melting face from Raiders? Yeah. Okay. He's Googling it right now. Oh, don't you going to... Nightmare Nazi. fuel. It's nightmare fuel. It was a Nazi. What? It was, it was a Nazi, Nazi though. Yeah. So, that yeah, okay. Baruch Hashem. Okay. <laughs> all right. Remember when they found E.T. all gray in a ditch? Oh, man. I got to stop. Okay. Okay. All right. <laughs> Remember that? I'm dying up here. Okay. What? You saw it in the theater. It was it, 83? 
They had an Atari game. The ET Atari game made no sense. It was outrageous. Okay, Atari 2600. Okay, at any rate, what were we talking about? Um, the, don't tell me, don't tell me, don't tell me. Hold on, don't do it. The Lishkas Parhedron. Yes. These were unworthy people. They did not deserve to be high priests. And they bribed their way in, and they would go into the Holy of Holies, and they didn't belong there, and they would die within the year. Okay. Interesting. Why would these guys do that? Why would they get themselves killed? So the Rebbe says, from this, you can learn something about the unbreakable bond between the Jewish soul and Hashem. Here you have a guy who's totally unfit for the office, has no business entering the Holy of Holies. And he's willing to bribe himself into the situation. You're telling us who this applies to? Don't say any names. We're recording over here. So he's willing to bribe his way into this position, knowing it's going to kill him, just so he can experience a little godly revelation. So there you go. Even somebody who you're writing him off, a Jew is a Jew is a Jew, and deep down, we mentioned the Oren, the Holy Ark is buried deep sometimes, but uh, it's always there. It's always there, and it comes out in weird ways, and this is one of the examples where it came out. These corrupt high priests, the end of the day, what do they want? They wanted a little godly revelation. Okay. Um... Regarding the temple, one, one of the things we're told is they had guards. They had guards around the temple. Um, it's actually a, a mitzvah to revere the Beis HaMikdash. And one of the ways that that is carried out is by placing guards around the Beis HaMikdash. And the Ramam explains that the guards are not because they're afraid of invaders. And they're afraid people are going to break into the Beis Hamikdash, but rather for honor, that there's no comparison, the Ramam says, between a palace with guards and a palace without guards. You go to uh, Buckingham Palace and you see the, the guard ceremony, the changing of the guard, and uh, it's about honor, it's about showing that something is precious, you put a, put a guard out front. It's not a practical thing. It's not like you're, you're really expecting somebody's going to, marauders are coming, you're going to have to fight them off. It's a, it's a form of respect. Okay, so what does that have to do with us? Each of us has a Beis HaMikdush. That means the parts of our lives and our days that we dedicate to Aveda, to service of Hashem. And we need to cherish that. We need to put a guard around it. Not because we're afraid of anti-Semitism. Somebody's going to come and tell us, you're not allowed to learn Torah. You're not allowed to lead a Jewish life. We're guarding it not from hostility. We're guarding it to show respect for it. So, for instance, if you have a time that's set up for learning, you have a, a class, and you meet a certain time, certain day, you put guards around that. In other words, Whatever you do to make sure you don't miss a flight out of JFK, you take the same precautions to make sure you're on time for that Torah class. Why? Because putting a guard around it, so to speak, shows that you cherish it, shows that it means something to you. Okay. And I'll share with you one, one last concept here. And that is... <coughs> The Rambam tells us that it is forbidden to damage even one stone of the Beis HaMikdash. It's actually uh, based on a verse which says that when the Jewish people were entering the land, they should destroy the Canaanite idolatrous altars, but do not do the same to the place of the Lord your God. Meaning, we are to destroy the idolatrous altars, but do not destroy Hashem's house. And uh, the Ramam says, somebody who destroys even one stone of the Beis HaMikdash is transgressing this prohibition. Well, we have a, we have a, a principle 
of Magid Devorev Liyankiv Chuk of Mishpat of Lisrael. Hashem gives his mitzvahs over to the Jewish people, meaning his mitzvahs, the mitzvahs that he keeps. How could Hashem tell us it's a mitzvah not to destroy the temple when he himself destroyed the temple? He tells us not to destroy even one stone. He destroyed the whole thing twice. So you have to look at it a little bit more uh, deeply. The Ramam says, he uses a phrase, Derech Hashchasa, which translated would mean in a destructive manner or with destructive intent. What does that mean? He doesn't spell it out clearly, but you could actually learn this from something else that Amm says. Not in Hilchas Beis Bechira, but uh, in the laws of a shul. You're not allowed to even knock down a shul, let alone the Beis HaMikdash. But you're not even allowed to knock down a shul. Except when you're allowed to knock down a shul? When you're doing renovation. Sometimes demolition is part of renovation. So derech hashchasa means to destroy, and the intent is to destroy. But if you're doing renovation and you do a little demo in order to make something better, so then it's not destructive at all. So what do we understand from this? The only reason Hashem was permitted, so to speak, to destroy His temple was for the purpose of rebuilding a greater one in its place. By the way, the second temple was bigger and stood longer than the first, and the third will be greater than all of them, and it'll be eternal. And this is also what we said at the very beginning about plowing, that this is all a growth process. And that when Mashiach comes, it's not just going to remove our pain, take away all of our suffering, but it's actually going to transform it. And we're going to see how everything Hashem did was just shifting things around to make it better than we could ever possibly dream. It was all productive. It was all purposeful. And during these three weeks, we should, yes, yes, we should remember the pain of the destructive phase, the phase that feels destructive, but we should, you know, that's the rearview mirror. We should also look at the, the windshield and remember that the real point of it all was, ne was never destruction to begin with. The real point of it all was always to bring us something greater, and we should be focused on that because that's where we're heading. May it be immediately.